All right, so here's what I want to do to open up our discussion. Uh, talk with the person next to you or the people around you or whoever you want to talk to. You guys, you can talk to yourself if you really want to. Uh, if you were to think about your non-Christian friends or just non-Christian people in general and put yourself in kind of their shoes, how would they describe Jesus or God, or Christians, or just Christianity in general? Like, what would their descriptive words or thoughts about those things be? Discuss, and we'll come back and share. All right, I know you guys are still discussing. That's okay. Come back, share some answers. So what would be some of the things that your friends who are non-Christians, how would they describe God or Jesus or Christianity? Jenna? He's not real. Okay, so yeah, there's already an assumption that God's not real, or if Jesus is real... Uh, he's probably just a normal human being. Nothing special about him. Christian? I mean, he just sounds like a really good guy. And all this. I don't know if he's real. And also, Christian Jason, like, really nice people. Yeah. So, Christian, verbatim, actually went in their shoes and said exactly what they would have said. <laughs> Way to follow directions. All right. He seems like a really great guy, but I don't know if he's real. And Christians are nice people, but there's a lot of rules that they follow. Nathan? Okay, yeah, okay, this is just like a neutral piece of information. I don't have to make any decisions about it. Megan? Yeah. Well, Christian's friends go to Valley, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Probably a lot of you, if your friends, if you go to public school or just maybe the circles you run with, a lot of your friends' perspectives on Christians or Christianity is that God is angry or um, intolerant or uh, a bad person or a mean guy and that Christians are even worse, you know, and we'll talk about that in a second. Paige? Okay, yeah, that God is apathetic. He doesn't care about anything. Jake? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Yeah. Christians say one thing and do another. Amy, you had your hand up? Oh, okay. Anybody else? Lizzie. Wow. All that buildup, you don't have anything. Yeah, okay, that Jesus is just a historical figure, a normal person, didn't do anything really special, and that Christians are extremely judgmental. That, that's a common thing that a lot of non-Christian people think. Any, anything else anybody wants to throw out there before we move on? Casey? Christians are horrible tippers. <laughs> True story. Not, not, it's not, I, mean, I don't have a great story for it, but in general, Christians... Uh, just aren't the best tippers. They don't use their money to bless that server. They look at it as like, you know, oh, they're, they're, they're not entitled to this money. They don't deserve it, you know. And so Josh actually has a bunch of stories about that. But Christians are the worst people to have at restaurants. So it's just, it's a weird thing. So, all right, any, any other ones anyone wants to throw out? Okay, so along these lines, let's... Uh, Let's, let's focus a little bit more on the negative ones or the ones that are kind of on the, on the neutral side, not the ones where they are like, well, Christians are great and they're super helpful and all that kind of stuff. 
but more the negative side of comments. Where do you think they learned that? Or how did they come to that decision or that view? Sam? Okay, yeah, so maybe their parents or older family members kind of teaching them that. Kylie? Okay, yeah, so maybe some people who claim to be Christians just in a nominal sense but aren't, and so they give us a bad name. Yeah, Mallory? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, along those lines, typically when a Christian is on TV, like CNN or Fox News or whatever, the person that they find is always the craziest Christian that you can find. Uh, or it's someone from like, you know, they live in a swamp and they like wandered out of the swamp and somehow found the TV studio and like, you know, just says all this weird stuff. Um, or Christians who, you know, are just kind of around you know, and that are interacting with a lot of non-Christians tend to be judgmental or they en- tend to do things that aren't necessarily in line with Scripture and then that gives us a bad name as well. Other, other ways that they could have learned this or come to these views? Any other thoughts? Laura? Yeah, okay, so if, you, if you've been told that God is real and that he cares about you and that he'll take care of you and then you have something bad happen... And you've, in, and you've interpreted that statement as, oh, if something bad happens to me and I go to God, he 100% has to fix it and do something about it, and then that doesn't happen, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be upset about God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia writer, when he was a kid, his mom got sick with cancer, I think. I don't know if it was cancer or something else. But um, his church told him, hey, if you pray, God will heal her. And then he prayed, and, then, and she didn't get better. And they said, oh, well, you just must not be praying hard enough or spending enough time in prayer. And so he's prayed more, and she still didn't get better, and she died. And that's what led him to becoming an atheist at first. And it was, you know, down the line that he became a Christian again, but it was partly due because he had been taught one thing that wasn't true, and he held so deeply to that, and then it disappointed him, and he ended up with this false view of God. Other, other ideas of where they may have learned this kind of stuff. Okay, one, one I'm going to throw out there that Maybe you guys don't think about, but a lot of non-Christians have actually been to church and they've had a bad church experience where they either attended church for a little while or um, maybe an older relative is very religious or they've gone to a church and, you know, heard the speaker and the speaker's weird or the speaker says strange things or, you know, their uh, perception of Christians are the ones who are standing on the street corners with signs that say you're going to hell and then there's no other information other than that, you know, and just like those kind of crazy people. So some people have that bad view developed out of just a bad church experience or a bad interaction with a Christian. So here's what I'm getting at, is a lot of non-Christians have their views, uh, and they're not getting their views from the right source. And in the same way, we have our views, and a lot of our views about God, and a lot of our views about Jesus are also incorrect because we've got them from the wrong source or we've had the wrong information or we've interpreted things wrongly. And so what we're going to be doing for this next year is we're going to be in the book of Luke and we're going to be looking at Luke and really trying to understand Jesus as Jesus is portrayed in scripture. Really getting down to, okay, what is going on here? And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So 
what's going to happen a lot tonight is we're going to flip around through a lot of places in the Old Testament and then eventually get to Luke. So that's where we're eventually going to end up. So if you want to follow along with me, you can. If you don't want to follow along, we're ending up in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we're just going to kind of intro this idea of what is Jesus really like? So kind of backing up, think about the Old Testament. God reveals himself to this guy named Abraham. And what does he promise Abraham? You may know. Land's one thing. Children's another thing. Does anybody know what the last one is? This is the hardest one. Blessing, right. So he promises to be, to make Abraham a blessing to all the other nations through his descendants and through his land. Okay? So that promise goes to Isaac. That promise from Isaac goes to Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of sons. They become the tribes of Israel. They end up in Egypt. That's pretty good for a while. Then a new king arises or a new pharaoh arises and enslaves them. And then now they're in slavery and they don't know what to do, and they're crying out to God. And I'm going to be in Exodus 3 for a moment, um, and it says, uh, Then Moses said to God, so this is the burning bush incident. You know, Moses has been in the desert. Bush catches on fire. It's not burning up. He knows this, notices it. God starts speaking to him out of it, and it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, so... The reason he's asking about what is your name is because a name implies relationship as opposed to a title. Uh, so like, you know, if you know Pharaoh's name, that's a big deal. But if you just know him as Pharaoh, that's not really a big deal. You know, so the name implies some relationship aspect. And then the name also implies some characteristics. So if you look at the different Egyptian gods uh, or different just gods of that time period from other nations, usually what they're... Uh, their name is almost a pun. You know, it's like, oh, you know something about them based off what their, what their name is. And so then God says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so I am who I am, or it can be translated as I will be who I will be, is translated, or what it means is God is saying, the thing that you gain from my name is that I exist and I am consistent. So he's saying to Israel, you know, the other, you know, Rock, that implies some, some stuff about creation in the sun. And Isis implies some stuff about healing. But God, Yahweh, implies he exists and he's consistent in his character. And you can know that he's real as opposed to the other gods. Okay, so that's what he's trying to get at. Okay, so now if you're following me, you can turn to Exodus 19. So now Israel is out of Egypt. They've already done the plagues. They've crossed the Red Sea. Now they're at Mount Sinai. They're about to get the law. And we're in verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses on top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Okay, so in this incident where they're about to get the law, there's a bunch of things that are happening on the mountain. What were some of them? Like, what did they hear? Or what kind of weather things happened? Smoke was one that came up a lot. Thunder and lightning was one. Where does smoke come from? Or what do you know what's going on if there's smoke? fire. Okay, that's another one. There's an earthquake. Um, 
and then there's this trumpet. Uh, and all of these things, what is getting at here, is that all of these things indicate that God is on the mountain. They don't indicate that that is what God is like. Okay, so this is the distinction. So when you're looking at other gods of other nations at this time period, they're always pictured as a specific image. You know, uh, they're pictured as a cow or a raven or a snake or something like that. And God, what he's doing here is saying, okay, you know that I'm here because all these things are happening, but none of these things are me. Is that, is that making sense? Yes, no. Okay, so the idea is that when you have an image of something, uh, it implies some characteristics of that. So in this time period, I know this is a weird thing to think about, but they thought cows were a powerful animal. Okay, so if a god was pictured as a cow or a bull, that meant that he was powerful. Okay, if he was pictured as a snake, it meant he was sly. Okay, so you're kind of getting this. So if God says, picture me as fire, that might mean one thing. If God says, picture me as thunder, that might mean something. God says, picture me as lightning. That might mean something. But what he's saying is, don't picture me as any of those things. Those things just indicate that I'm with you. That's what he's trying to get at. And then you get to uh, Deuteronomy 4. We won't won't read that one. But basically what happens in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is commenting on this. And he's saying, that's why we don't make graven images or idols of God. We don't picture him as anything because anything that we might picture him as would give us the wrong idea about him. And we would start to think that God is a cow or that God is you know, a snake. And then we'll treat that animal differently or we might think of him as a human or we might think of him as anything else, but that would give us the wrong picture of God. Okay, so, so far what we have in the Old Testament is we've got God, his name means that I am who I am and I will do what I will do and I'm consistent and I exist, but don't picture me as anything else. And then you get to Jesus which Jesus is the English version of the name in Hebrew. The name in Hebrew is Yeshua, and Yeshua means Yahweh saves. So trying to create this idea for us that Jesus is Yahweh coming to save. And then now we're going to get into the New Testament. And in Colossians 1, verse uh, verse 15, let me get there. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so now you've had an entire testament, several thousand years, where the people of Israel have been told, don't think of God as an image, of any specific image, because it will get you the wrong idea of what God is like. Now they have Jesus and they say, that is the image you're supposed to picture God as. Jesus is the image. When you understand Jesus, you'll understand God. Don't understand the image and then try and understand God understand Jesus. And that's how it works. So now go to Luke. So this is why we talked about it. I'll tell you why we talked about all that. So it says in Luke 1 verses 1 through 4, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world uh, or of the word have delivered them to us. So what he's saying is, okay, this is being written 30 years at the most since Jesus died. So A lot of people are around. A lot of people have talked with Jesus. They've spoken with him. They were there for the events. You know, like when you think about the feeding of the 5,000, that's just 5,000 men and then all their wives, probably another 5,000, then all their kids. So maybe as many 20,000 people are at that event. Okay, so lots of people have been there for these things. So they've been talking about it for a long time. You know, if you're Jewish, this is like national news. Everybody in Israel knows what, how this event went down. So lots of people have been talking about it. Lots of people have been writing about it. So at this point, 
Mark is for sure written. Matthew is probably written, and John maybe has been written. So, you know, there's gospels being circulated. Peter and Paul have been doing their ministry, so they've been, you know, sending their letters. So lots of people have been doing this, and he's going to say, it seemed, this is verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke says, I want to add to the, I want to write down what I know, because I've been following this for a long time. And he says, I want to write an orderly account. And so what that means is he's trying to write a historical account. He's trying to do the history version of this. Because if you look at Matthew or you look at Mark, like Mark's intended purpose is that you would read it all at once and then someone would get up afterwards and explain it to you. So there's no clear like gospel presentation in Mark. In Matthew, it's organized by theme. And so you have one theme, that theme finishes, moves on to the next theme. Luke is saying, okay, I'm going to write this down historically, uh, going from narrative to narrative, how it happened uh, chronologically, all that kind of stuff. So he's trying to give that version of it. And history shows that he does a really good job with that, even from a non-Christian perspective. Compared to other histories that are out there from this time period, Luke is considered by non-Christian scholars, you know, top tier in his research and what he writes. And he says, uh, uh, to, for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that term, most excellent, means that this guy is a Roman official. So he's someone who's in power. Uh, but he's probably Greek or uh, some other ethnicity other than a Jewish person. And then the name Theophilus means lover of God. And so that could either be the guy's name or that could be another title that he's attributing to him. And so what he's basically saying is to you, person of importance who loves God, I want to make sure that you have an orderly account of who Jesus is. And then he says, verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And what he means by this idea of certainty is that you, as a person who is following Jesus now, who is getting your information about him, that you would know the truth about who who Jesus is. And by knowing the truth of who Jesus is, you would then know God. You would understand God. Because what happens for all of us is we see other Christians and they do something that we look at and say, I don't know that that's what Jesus would have done. But then we're saying, oh, that person is a Christian or they're claiming to be a Christian. And we then project that back onto God. Or we have a bad religious experience or you know, any number of things. And the important thing is that we know the truth of what Jesus really was like and what he really thought, what he really talked about. And so that's our, that's our purpose for why we're doing this study, because all of us have that baggage. We all come to this and say, you know, I have all of us, we have bad views of God that we need to have dismantled and have the correct view of God given to us. Or we have a good view of God and we have to have that enforced to know, oh, that is the truth. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of different things about Jesus that I'm sure some of them you have heard and some of you haven't. You know, like the classic one that we always know is that Jesus loved sinners and he, you know, made the religious people really angry. You know, that's one that we talk about all the time, that the people who uh, were the most religious, you know, the people who went to church the most, those are the people who missed God. But the sinners, the people who are the prostitutes and the tax collectors, those are the people that found God. But there are other ones, like how many of you guys have heard the story of Mary and Martha? You guys anybody remember that one? Yes, no, flannel graph. So basically what happens in that one is you have Mary and Martha, their sisters. Mary goes and sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to him. Martha is in the kitchen being busy, and they're all upset at Mary that she's doing that. And they say, you know, and then Jesus says, no, Mary chose the right thing. She's sitting and listening. So what that story usually gets taught as is that, hey, make sure your perspective is in the, or your priorities are in the right place. But what's really going on in that story is that 
when Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, she's fit, sitting there with all the men and she's sitting there with all the disciples and uh, that was culturally inappropriate. She was not allowed to be there. You know, women in this time period weren't allowed to have access to the preachers and the teachers. They got that information through their husband. So when Jesus says, no, it's great that she's there, what Jesus is basically saying is women have access to God equally as men. But that part of the story never gets talked about. But that's the part that Jesus cared about. You know, there are other things where you look at God's power and what he was able to do and what he was able to accomplish, or the things that broke his heart, or the things that he cared about, or the things that uh, he suffered, or the things that he had to endure for our sake. This will make him more relatable. There are things, like next week we're going to look at the Christmas story. And normally the Christmas story is, you know, happy, and there's Charlie Brown, and, you know, the shepherds, and all this kind of stuff. But when you really look at the Christmas story, it's really setting up this idea that everyone is going to hate Jesus because of what happened at his birth. You know, and we'll talk about that next week. We will see a lot of things about God that we thought, oh, this makes way more sense that God is like this. Or I had no idea that God was like this. Or, wow, there are a lot of things that Christians do that aren't the way that Jesus would have done them. And that's our purpose. We want to come into this with fresh eyes, with a fresh lens to say, okay, God, reveal to me what you're really like. Because I want to know more of how you really are and I want to know how I should be, because when I know you, then I'll, be, I'll follow as well. We don't want to project onto God what his followers are like. We want to project onto God, or we want to learn about God through Jesus and then become like him. And that's what his followers are supposed to be like. All right, so any questions before I dismiss you guys? Okay, so I'm going to pray, but if you are a ninth grade girl, your leaders this year are Kylie and Victoria. They don't look that excited, but they maybe are. So I'm afraid though. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we can come together and worship you. I pray that as we go into the study and we start looking at the Gospels and we start looking at Luke, that we would come to a deeper understanding of you. Please take any bad views that we have, the incorrect views, and dismantle them and reinforce the truth. Take any good views that we have that we believe that are right and righteous and enforce those and help us to really hold to those. Pray that the study would be an eye-opening perspective on you for all of us. In your name, amen.